Before we get into this episode, I'm pleased to announce that Mind Maladies is now partnered with the Alan Who Foundation. Be sure to check out their upcoming webinar on December 7th. This webinar will focus on the topic of sleep, specifically sleep in adolescence and how sleep can serve as an intervention for mental and physical health issues. The link to the Allen Who Foundation website and the link to register for the webinar is in the description of this episode. Today's podcast will focus on gaining a better understanding of autism. At my school, the so-called special education students are separated from the general education students. I've witnessed the hardships and ridicule that many of these special ed students endure on a day-to-day basis. Today, I hope to shed some light on what some of these students internally struggle with. To help us understand the topic better is Suzanne Gregg, a psychiatric nurse practitioner who focuses on autism. She has a unique understanding of autism as her son has autism. Due to this, she offers a first-hand account of what autism looks like and the challenges that arise with it. She is currently working at Mary Landing Healthcare. Is there anything you'd like to add, Suzanne? Hi, I'm Susie Gregg. I work with all ages, and I'm also a certified autism specialist. What are your areas of expertise and what do you focus on? I work with a lot of individuals, children and adults with developmental disabilities, and I work with kids with disruptive disorders. Can you elaborate on that? Uh, What kind of disorders do they have and what are the age groups primarily? For kids, I see um, ages five and up. I don't see the really teeny tiny kiddos. And I can see a variety of disorders. I mean, things like ADHD that people are pretty familiar with or oppositional symptoms. Um, I work with a lot of kids that have been through like traumatic things with their families or in foster care and have adjustment disorders or trauma disorders. And then for with developmental disabilities, the reason I often see individuals is if they're having difficulties with aggression or self-injurious behaviors or just very loud and disruptive in the community. So today you said you wanted to come on and talk about specifically autism, right? Yes. Uh, yes. So in your perspective, what is your take on autism? Oh, goodness. Um I think we're still just kind of scratching the surface on what causes autism and as far as trying to understand the biology and the genetics behind it. But overall autism, it's, it's a neurodevelopmental disorder. So with a broad range of symptoms, but there are always challenges with social skills, um, verbal and nonverbal communication, and then kind of a group of behaviors we categorize as repetitive behaviors that you'll see in either the mild cases or even the more profound cases. Can you explain very briefly uh, what goes on in the brain? Well, there is a lot of theories about that. So the most recent one has to do with mirror neurons that they think there might be some dysfunction in, but there, there you could find different reports as far as every part of the brain that they think is affected and you'll find somebody else to say that it's not. There's no definitive like CAT scan tests or MRIs that you can do to see any abnormalities on the brain that are common with autism. I mean, most autism brain MRIs are going to be normal. Um, There are some genetic conditions that are associated with autism, but they're not thought to cause autism. You're just more likely to have autism if you have those. Um, But they do assume there's some genetic links because some families definitely have more um, individuals with autism than other families. And then they're looking a lot into like environmental factors, mainly what happens when the mom's pregnant, if there's anything along those lines that's causing autism. 
But as far as any definitive brain changes, that's still pretty out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, people that do exhibit autism are on, are on the spectrum. Uh, what kind of common symptoms do they display? Um, okay, so they're all kind of grouped into s- sections and then those can vary kind of by intensity or frequency. Um, so the first kind of common group of symptoms has to do with social communication and social interactions. So individuals, I mean, young kids through adults could struggle with like the normal back and forth of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, they might not understand nonverbal communications, struggle with like jokes and just understanding how those play into things. And so all of that make it a lot more difficult to develop relationships, maintain relationships and um, like either friendship relationships, romantic relationships, or even relationships on the job. It also makes it harder to understand what's like generally expected of them. They can't always understand the nuances of that and to function in groups can be a lot more difficult. Then like the next major group of symptoms are like the restrictive repetitive patterns of behaviors. And this has a lot more pieces to it that individuals can have. And they don't have to have all of these symptoms, but they need to have some out of it. So it includes some of the more classic symptoms of autism, like echolalia, where you just repeat what has been said to you, kind of the motor stereotypies, like hand flapping or kind of unusual hand movements in front of the eyes, using idiosyncratic phrases, um, just kind of more the odd symptoms. But it also includes like um, an inflexible adherence to routines. Like, I mean, we all like routines and you know, don't like when they're changed, but this would be to the extreme end a highly restricted fixated interest. Um, so with kids, you know, I'll have parents say, you know, they're super into Minecrafts, but that's not like an unusual interest. I mean, there's tons of kids interested in Minecrafts, but I have a teenager that's super into water towers. I mean, he can tell you about every water tower in our whole state. That would be a very unusual yeah. interest. And he could talk about them all day. Um, and then the sensory issues. So you can either be hyper sensitive or hypo reactive to different sensory input. Uh, so uh, I read about that. It's known as uh, sensory overload. It can be. So yeah, it can be sensory overload or like almost a sensory deficit. So what happens when someone is experiencing sensory overload? What do they feel? Uh, so it depends on the sense, but one kind of common example is like fluorescent lights. So thankfully they're not used as much now, but they make a bit of a buzzing sound. So someone with autism may hear that buzzing sound and that would be extremely loud to them. They wouldn't be able to just ignore it. Like most people can just kind of block it out and not even really hear it. So they'd be hearing that sound. And then if they're sensitive to other sounds like doors shutting, if they sound like banging or even just people talking or if they're talking in a certain way, all of that can sound much more intense to the individual until they're just overloaded with that, which can lead, I mean, it kind of depends on the age, but lead to a tantrum or can just lead to somebody shutting down or just, just any kind of maladaptive behavior to that sensory input. You can also see it with feel like the, usually like if they don't like how the clothes feel on itself, it's not going to lead to a sensory overload, but that can be one trigger. And then if anything else happens, change in temperature on their skin or anything else they're having to touch that could put them into a sensory overload. Gearing back towards uh, like social situations, uh, if this might seem impossible, but can you like put us in someone with autism, like some their shoes? How do they feel in social situations? Like why don't they recognize social cues? Why don't they like get like irony, sarcasm, stuff like that? 
Sure. Um, especially like some of my higher functioning individuals with autism, I've been able to have, you know, pretty good conversations about this. They're very, um, kind of black and white with social situations. So in social situations are all about that nuance and, you know, they, they know facts, they can understand facts very easily. So they have to try to break down social interactions into those steps for them to make sense in their mind. They have to understand if they say, you know, this type of joke, this is the response you have. I mean, they don't just know any of that. So it's a lot more work for them to have a general conversation or even just the back and forth. They, have to almost memorize the steps or signs that show it's their turn to talk or how will they know when it's the other person's turn to talk or that that person's bored. They have to kind of be taught, overtly taught all of those symptoms and they have to recall them in their mind as they're having these social interactions, especially with people that they're not as familiar. I mean, if they're talking to someone that they know well and they're not worried about offending, I mean, then they're not gonna worry and they're just gonna talk kind of in their own way. Um, but if they're trying to make a good impression, then it is just a lot more work um, having to break down every conversation down into those little details. They see everything, like you said, like black and white. It's either like uh, they see it really straightforward. It's either good or it's bad to them. Yeah, to a main degree. There's always like a right and a wrong way to do yeah. things. You mentioned something about certain genetic disorders that may lead to more likelihood of showing autism. So are there any other factors that play a role, like have a disproportionality to showing autism, like gender? Yeah, yeah gender definitely does. Boys are a little more than four times likely to get autism. I think that statistic's still current. Um, part of that, though, is that girls with autism tend to be quieter. So they're a little harder to diagnose in the, like the classic autism descriptors and criterion were kind of based off of boys with autism like you know the yeah. men that study this studied men with autism and boys with autism it kind of came up with the criteria so it's been this last time in the dsm-5 they've changed it a little more to reflect girls but it's just a little trickier to find girls because they're not as disruptive about it all but likely boys are still far more likely to have autism yeah. than girls as far as like things that they're looking into during pregnancy i mean these are things like medications women take when they're pregnant, if they have diabetes, high blood pressure, influenza, if the baby's born preterm. I mean, a lot of those things they've looked at and they kind of have some possibilities, but nothing definitive. A long time ago, vaccines yeah. were kind of to blame, but that, that research has all been retracted by the yeah. researchers themselves and it's been pretty well disputed. So I was gonna ask, uh, what are some of the most common misconceptions of autism? So I think that's one of them for sure, right? Yeah, the vaccines, I mean, that still sticks around, even though yeah. um, there's a lot of evidence against it. And I can, I said, say the beginning. So I have a teenage son with autism. And for different reasons, we were actually late on getting him his vaccinations. And so the vaccines that were known to like cause autism, he hadn't even had when he, mm -hmm. like, we knew he had autism. And it still occurred at the same time, like after you would typically get that MMR shot. Um, but I know like with him, it absolutely wasn't an issue because he wasn't even getting his shots yet. But other misconceptions is that individuals don't want social interaction or they don't have empathy just because they have a harder time showing it. But I mean, they're, they're still people. They still crave that human connection. They just have a much harder time showing it. And a lot of individuals with autism that I know are very empathetic. They almost don't know what to do with all those feelings when they have them. 
because um, they learn to kind of study people and try to figure out how they're feeling. So sometimes they can actually catch on quicker than other people once they get good at that. The other misconception that's often out there it has to do more with intellect, that if you have autism, that you're a, like a savant at something, which I mean, there are certainly cases of that, but that is not the norm. Um, or the other end that you're intellectually disabled and you can be mm -hmm. very intelligent and have autism. I mean, there are individuals that have both, yeah. um, but it's not, not a definite. But I think sometimes how individuals with autism can struggle with communication and just how they speak, they can come off as if they're not as intelligent and people just jump to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. What is your opinion on the new treatments that have come out to attempt to treat autism? Um, the main treatment right now is different behavioral therapies. Mm -hmm. um, applied behavioral analysis is the most effective therapy or as far as research-based therapies. And the big push is to, for early intervention. So to diagnose a kiddo, hopefully before they're even two, where even like 15 years ago, I mean, you tried to not label somebody. So there was kind of the opposite push. So now we try to get these kids identified early so they can start these behavioral therapies and things like speech therapy, occupational therapy, because the earlier you get teaching them when they're little, just like anything, anything you learn when you're little, it kind of sticks with you for the rest of your life. It's just easier to adapt um, as they grow into adolescence and adulthood. What age are most people diagnosed with autism? Um, that varies quite a bit. So the more profound autism, you can usually diagnose by two. Some kids even by like 18 months would probably be the youngest. There's certainly cases younger than that, but 18 months is probably generally the youngest. But if you have less intense symptoms of autism, sometimes those don't become apparent until the world gets harder. So generally little kids are more accepting of other kids kind of idiosyncrasies. And so they may still have friends and some social interaction, but as you get into like age 10 up into adolescence, their peers are not gonna be quite as accepting of their kind of odd behaviors as a general rule. So that's when sometimes you'll see some of the behaviors come out and you'll really notice that this child has more social deficits than we identified in the beginning. Okay, yeah, speaking of that, what are the most extreme forms? Like I know the spectrum, are there any like named forms of autism? Like how many types um, are there? They don't, they're just done by levels. So nothing too flashy, just level one, two, and three. So level three is the most profound. Level one is the most similar to what we used to call Asperger's. So with level three, um, I mean, traditionally the individual would be basically completely not verbal, not really even have nonverbal communication. There would just be very little, very little social interaction that in a flexibility to change routines, you would see that. I can think of one individual, even if the routine is to something they like, like they had a schedule and he was going to get out of a period of class that he traditionally didn't like and was going to get to use the iPad. But because it was a change in his schedule, he still had a major meltdown. He just couldn't cope with any kind of changes in his routine. You'll see more of the kind of the odd behaviors like the echolalia or kind of a sing-song voice talking in idiosyncratic phrases. Um, a lot of times there's scripts from like... Disney movies or TV shows they watch and just kind of the odd hand movements. So that would be more kind of the classic autism that we've known about for years. It's been kind of the less severe autism that we've been diagnosing lately. So uh, this change in routine, like with the iPad, uh, how do you help someone with autism? Like say you're like another classmate, right? 
how would you yeah. help someone with autism there like they're ha having a meltdown yeah especially as a peer well schools do i mean overall there's some good research so you try to have a general schedule and you have visuals to support that. And you do actually kind of practice having some changes in routine. So, but you start with much smaller changes and try to work that up. So that's what therapists and schools would be working on. As a peer, I mean, the most thing that they can do is just try to be accepting of it and not, mm -hmm. not overreact if the individual's getting worked up about something, just try to be just know that it's going to run its course. I mean, as another student, it can be pretty difficult. And then once they've kind of settled back down, just being ready to talk to them, or if you're going to work on something together, get to work with it. Um, knowing about changes ahead of time can be helpful. Um, knowing what's going to happen like after the change. So kind of what the schedule will be after that, making things as predictable as possible can help. Because uh, it certainly happens, especially like in group projects or things that things have to change. But and the individual with autism is going to have to cope with those. But you want to still just try to add as much predictability in there as you can. In my school, uh, normally they separate to classes like special ed and then general ed. Uh, but there's this one course uh, you can take. They integrate the uh, the two, and you can actually like work with people like uh, the special ed kids like in a PE class. And awesome. I, I think that's really cool. Uh, I was enrolled. I'm enrolled in this in that class this year, but uh, everything's online, so like not really the same. Oh, yeah. So it is different. So I actually got to do that when I was in middle school, and it was a huge ordeal back then because I'm much older. So you know, nobody ever we knew where like the special ed room was, but you never like got to really mm -hmm. see in it. Yeah. We didn't know what it looked like, and you'd occasionally see one of the kids out from that. But they even like changed rooms at different times, so we never interacted. Um, yeah, that was definitely a big impact for me is working in that room. And I worked with a couple boys with autism. That kind of changed my course for what I wanted to do for a living. Um, and it's just trying to find, so especially with the more profound individuals, trying to find ways to communicate, whether it's like coloring and they might like coloring with you that's not quite as in your face kind of communication or looking at pictures of things they're interested in being able to kind of share in that or just real simple things that's any kind of connection but it doesn't have to be like a full-on conversation mm -hmm. uh some last questions like more general how common is autism in like the american population right the latest data is that one in 54 kids will be diagnosed with autism so they study like a particular age and that frequency and right now it's one in 54 so it's like a little less than two percent yeah uh, is that the same like for overall population, not just America? Or is it different? In um, it is. So the older adults, there aren't as many older adults diagnosed with the higher functioning autisms because you're not as likely to get diagnosed as an adult because you have to prove yeah. that you had it you, when you were quite young. That's part of the criteria. You can't just develop autism as a teenager. Sometimes you don't realize it till you're older, but you can look back and say, oh, I had all of this when I was younger. So can you self-diagnose uh, yourself? Um, you can have a pretty good idea, but uh -huh. you still need to go in to see somebody to really determine if you fully meet the criteria. And that, I mean, we all have bits of it, or at least at times of autism, mm -hmm. the different symptoms that can make up it. But it also has to have like a significant impact on your life. So you may have some of these symptoms, but in general, you function completely fine in the world, then, then you don't have autism. You just have, you know, some of the traits of it. Mm -hmm. 
So that's where a provider can kind of distinguish between just some of the symptoms and actually meeting the full criteria for autism. Yeah. Uh, one last question. Uh, with the development of COVID, all that, how would you describe your field of study has changed? Oh, that's definitely changed. So we are doing a lot more by telehealth, um, which has been good overall. Before you could do telehealth, but the client would have to be at another medical facility. They couldn't be in their home in case something dangerous happening is the reasoning behind that. But now insurance companies have kind of let up on that. So I've been able to see people at their homes, essentially, which tells you a lot more about what's going on. A lot of times the individual's more comfortable. You get to meet more of the family. I mean, you get to definitely see different things through that regard. Um, but it's also a little trickier because you don't get to see them in person. It's harder to visualize like their full body or check their heights and weights and those sort of things that we'd like to too. But where we, I live in rural Nebraska and I see people from an hour or so to hour to two hours away from here, even a little further than that. So it's saving them the drive and uh, it's been definitely a good tool to be able to do telehealth. As far as like symptom wise, I mean, people initially had more anxiety related to COVID and we'd see an increase in people coming in that way. But that it seems like a lot of people, especially the kids that I work with, kids kind of adjust quicker, have adjusted to kind of this new COVID world. So I haven't seen as much intake related to just the stress of living in the COVID situation. But being able to see them in a different way has been the biggest change. Have they experienced harsher symptoms, like at living at home, like not um, going to school? A little. Yeah, there's definitely been some that have. Uh, but then there's also been you know, some that that's taken quite a stress off for them. So then they feel like they're doing better, but, and it's been harder. So here kids are going back to school. So being off of school for so many months and then having to go back to school, we've seen a definite increase in anxiety. Um, kids just worried about being embarrassed at school, having a hard time leaving home and going out um, and doing that. So with that switch, I've seen almost a bigger increase in um, psychiatric symptoms than I did when they initially were quarantined. That's all I have for you today. Thank you for sharing. I'm sure the listeners found this discussion very informative. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure you check out the link in the description to the Mind Maladies website. See you guys in the next episode.